We are um, super excited, my family and I, to be back here at Edgewater. And for, for this year, um, some of you know our story. We were, we were here a while ago, came back for, for this year, and uh, happy to be here. And it's really cool to see the impact that Edgewater has had and has continued to have through its ministries. Last week, I was up at Grace Family Church up in Rogers Park, and there were some former Edgewaterites up there ministering, and it was just really cool to see. Even outside the walls here of the church, God is good and has used this place. I was telling, talking to Andy a few weeks ago. This is a special place. This is the kind of place where we want to come back. And it's also the kind of place, uh, part of what makes that special, it's the kind of place where the people of Edgewater are receptive to God's word receptive to God's word. That's a big deal. Because I've, I've, I've worked in a number of different chapel settings, in a number of different church settings, and that's not always the case. Edgewater is a special place. And if you have been with us in the study of 1 Samuel, there's this verse in, in chapter 3 where it talks about during the days of Eli, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Can you imagine where the word, of the, the word of the Lord was rare in the days of Eli? We don't want to go back there. We don't go back, want to go back to that scenario. And so being receptive to God's word is a huge deal because you see it as a gift from the Lord. And there were times where the word of the Lord was rare. And let's not go back there. So that's my prayer this morning, that he would use me to pass on his message to you, kind of like a courier it, you know, your pastors here, your, your elders, your leaders, your, your preachers, we're just couriers. We're delivering the message. And let us continue to be receptive here at Edgewater. Would you pray with me this morning? Almighty God, your word gives us guidance that is relevant for today. Your message is life-giving. It gives us warning and rebuke when we need it. It gives us encouragement when we need that as well. And we confess that we all too often look elsewhere for answers for our questions, for the many problems that we face both in society and in our own personal lives. Uh, these problems seem daunting and discouraging, Lord, but you are still God, and so we look to you. Lord, when our future may look bleak, maybe things, maybe this world looks out of control, Lord, would you please build our faith? May we look to you today as our provider for that which we lack, for our comforter during times of loss, and as our leader for the obstacles and even enemies who might seem seek to do us harm. Lord, we look to you this morning. Amen. So if you haven't turned to 1 Samuel 8, I invite you to do so, and, and thank you so much for, for reading that passage. Uh, a little bit longer, but I, I wanted you to kind of get what's happening here. We're going to explain it a little bit, but we need to hear it first. And it's about royalty. We seem to be fascinated by the concept of royalty. Who doesn't like a good castle, right? Or maybe you enjoy a good British accent. 
Um, some of us, you know, have been alive for a while, and the queen was on the throne for 70 years before she passed away. We mourned the loss of the queen. There's, there's something missing. She, was, she, she taught us to uh, keep calm and carry on just by kind of being there. And, and so we, we mourn that loss. Uh, but the royal family has given us endless fascination, have they not? Uh, what is going on with Harry and Meghan these days? <laughs> so, hey, I didn't watch the Netflix series, but somebody's buying his book. It's like breaking records, his book that came out, Spare. Uh, so you probably know more about him than I do, but this is kind of what we think of sometimes when we think of kings and queens and royalty. And so we have to address that, but then also get beyond that. Uh, by the way, who's taken the, D the DNA test to see if they actually have an estate somewhere that you just got to like figure out, oh yeah, I just got to go claim it, right? It's these things, when we think of royalty, it seems so distant, so far off. And we come to, that, come to this passage uh, uh, about a king, and we have to step back in time. And we're, we're really stepping back to the late Bronze Age, which seems like eons ago. I mean, uh, five years ago, you know, with the technology moving as, as fast as it is, five years ago seems like eons ago. But we're going back in time here into this setting. And did you know that in the Bible, there's actually a positive viewpoint of the idea of, of a king? There's a, there's a positive vision of having a king in the Bible. If you just read 1 Samuel chapter 8, you wouldn't think so. But if you go back to Genesis, there's an early comment about a king descending from Abraham. And that's one of the big promises to Abraham. Kings will come from you. It's positive. And then in Deuteronomy, one of the lesser read books of the Bible, in Deuteronomy, we find instructions. If you dig deep enough, there's instructions about what do you do with a king. And... Guess what one of the first jobs of the king was supposed to be? Does anybody know? Anybody? What's the king supposed to do? The king is supposed to write out his own copy of God's law. How about that? And I was thinking about that. What's the significance of that? Well, it's their own personal copy, uh, but there's also something to be said about a leadership position being shaped by God's word, almost to the point where, you know, it's, it's internalized. And I tried this out. As I was preparing for this message, I decided I'm going to type out on my computer 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I did that. And guess what? When I did that, it got a little bit deeper into my soul, a little bit deeper. And it's a good spiritual discipline to do something like that, to write out the instructions. But God's instructions to us, but this was what the king was supposed to do. And so you have this positive idea of a king. And then in the book of Judges, we read that how we read two phrases right, by, right beside each other. Phrase number one is that the people did what was right in their own eyes. And it wasn't a good thing. It was not flattering. Right next to that comment is, that, is this phrase that there was no king. So you, it seems to be implying that if there was a king, 
then the people would not be doing whatever they wanted to do. That they would, you know, if the king's doing what they're supposed to be doing, that they would be inclined to be receptive to God's word. Samuel, by the way, is considered the last of the judges, and he was a pretty good example of what godly leadership should be. Unfortunately, not everybody followed his example to include his sons. In verse 3, we read that his sons turned after money. They took bribes and they perverted justice. And it just goes to show you, you know, maybe as a parent you can identify with this, but it, it, it goes to show you that sometimes, you know, Samuel here is a godly man who walks closely with God, but his kids did not. And it's, it's, it's sad, right? It's very sad. And with Eli, Eli seems like he had a little more to do with it, but his, his sons were completely off the rails. And, uh, but there seems to be an element where Eli could have done something about it with his kids. But you see these things, you, it's just a passing comment, but, but it's, it's real life going on here as well. And there's this crisis brewing. As Samuel is getting old, he's past his prime, and his sons are unfit for leadership. And again, stepping back into this late Bronze Age, we have to think, if you're an Israelite, you're a relatively small group of people. And the people around you, there are more of them, and they are more technologically advanced, all right? They didn't have iPhones or this kind of a thing, but... They at least had things like blacksmiths and swords. And so they were more technologically advanced and they were known to be uh, put a lot of emphasis on their military. So there's this fear on the part of the Israelites where Joey talked a little bit about some of the battles, the Battle of Mizpah last week. But there was this fear that without Samuel to intercede on their behalf, that it was going to be game over. This fear. So you have this, the external danger of these nations, most notably the Philistines, but you also had this internal anxiety that uh, Sam is getting old and his sons, we don't want them, so what are we going to do? Are you with me so far? Okay, so, by the way, as you, as you think about this, have you ever felt uneasy about something big that's, some big change in your life that's happening? Because this is a big change, it's, it's a crisis moment, right? That's, big things are changing, they see it, it makes them nervous. Have you ever been there? Sometimes we feel like we don't really relate to these people, but then... You know, they're just, they're just sinners and, and they make mistakes. We can't really relate to them, right? Um, I, I jest, right? Like, we, <laughs> if you know your Bible, like, hey, we all make mistakes and we all disobey God. That's why we need God's help. So if, if we can just get over ourselves, and I think you'll see that we actually have a lot in common with these people. It's not very flattering, per se, but... Um, we too are prone to wander, and they are certainly wandering. And so the, the, king, the people come up with a plan, all right? 
the people represented by their, their elders. So the elders uh, in this scenario, a little bit different than church elders, think of them as like family clan leaders in these tribes. And so they approach Samuel and they ask him for a king. And I mentioned before that there's this positive vision of a king in the Bible so far. What's the big deal? In verse 6, it says that Samuel is displeased. He's displeased with this request. And so we wonder why. Well, one reason is they're not seeking out God's plan for the people. This is their own plan. Have you ever done that? Where you present God with your plan and expect him to carry it out or, or bless it, you know, stamp, sign off on it. Here's the plan, God. Usually it doesn't work that well. But that's what's happening here. So that's one reason why this displeased Samuel. He was the judge and leader. And another thing I was thinking about, was like, they probably should have consulted with him. He was their leader. Doesn't that make sense? Hey, we got this big change. Maybe we should talk to our leader, who's also a man of God. That might help. But they don't do that. They never have the conversation. You get the impression that they're just telling him what they want, and they ask him to deliver. It's pretty demanding. And so I'm not really liking the approach here, right? But at the same time, I was like, hey, I can kind of identify that because I kind of do stuff like that too sometimes. Um, but it's off-putting to Samuel. And here, here's the kicker is that one big reason why they wanted the king was what? You read it. What's one big reason that we haven't mentioned is why they wanted the king? What's that? Yeah, to, to go out and judge them and to fight their battles, and they wanted to be like who? They wanted to be like the other nations, right? Hmm. Okay. Sort of missed the whole point of being God's chosen people. The whole point of God setting apart a people for himself, or the implication of that point, was that they were supposed to be different. They were marked off at birth to be different. They had a different code of conduct. They had a special diet. And most importantly, they had a God, a Yahweh God-centered vision for their lives. And now they want to exchange that identity that Samuel has cultivated, this identity, in favor of these other alternative visions, these other worldviews. So if, think about this, you know, if uh, you're in that era and the Philistines publish this book, you're, you're on the, the, the late Bronze Age Amazon page, and the Philistines publish a book entitled How to Have a Successful Government and Military During the Late Bronze Age. The Israelites would have bought the book. And then they would bring those ideas and, hey, this looks pretty good. 
And again, how many times do we not only present our plans to God, but uh, our plans look a lot like everybody else's? And there's nothing uniquely spiritual about it at all. So if you have been called by God to be a follower of God, then your plans should be submitted to God. And loosely, might I, I might add, and those plans should at least look a little bit different than those around you, different than the world, because ultimately your life should be governed by God himself. Again, different time, different place, but I'm seeing some themes that we could kind of latch onto and identify with as we're going through this passage. So they hatch a plan. It seems logical, but it doesn't include God. This was God's old covenant people. It was a unique time and place in history. So I don't want to minimize that part of it, but I also don't want to minimize the connection that this has with our lives because this was written for us. Yahweh is not mentioned, or if he is, he's not fully trusted in this plan. And so what does Samuel do after this? When after this idea of the king rubbed him the wrong way, he prayed. We see Samuel being a good example here of how to handle some of these things. It's, and some of these things, it's not rocket science, but it is a matter of trust and Samuel trusts the Lord, and he goes to him in prayer. And there's pressure. There's pressure for him to endorse this plan by the people. And this is where it gets interesting, because even though the plan was out of step with the Lord, God tells Samuel to go ahead and grant them a king. Isn't that, that was surprising to me. It's a little surprising, right? But that's not all he says. He says the story is one of rejection. And it goes back to the Exodus, at least, a little bit in Genesis as well, to where you have a group of people that are eyewitnesses of the wonders of God. They are eyewitnesses of God's deliverance and they forget about it. They forget about God's goodness. They forgot, forget about his deliverance. These people even forgot about chapter 7, the battle of Mizpah. They forgot about it, where the Lord fought their battle on their behalf. And maybe, maybe that's us. How many of us have forgotten that lesson from last week? We might have. We are called to remember because it matter, when, when we remember God's provision, when we remember God's deliverance, it matters in how we approach life. And it matters in how we see the problems that we face. It matters a lot. We are called throughout Scripture to remember the Lord's works for what he has done for us in the past. And that gives us confidence that he's still at work. 
and when we forget how the Lord works, when we don't teach our children about the deliverance of God, when we ourselves forget about it, we drift towards this nasty word called rejection. It's a rejection of the Lord. And, and he even says, verse 7 is actually quite chilling. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, for the, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's a chilling verdict. And I, I hope it's never said of me. I hope it's never said of you that we've not just rejected God's messenger, but we've rejected God. Verse 8 makes it real. At the heart of this rejection is a desire to serve other gods. Again, you don't get that right at the beginning, but as you unpack this, there's this strong temptation to look somewhere else for things like security, to look for answers, and to look for joy in our lives. Who remembers the Ten Commandments? Those are kind of biggies in the Old Testament. All right, what was the first one? The first of the Ten Commandments. What was it? Yeah, and that you should have no other gods before me, which is tied into that. I was talking with someone a couple weeks ago about this passage, and it reminded him, and I, th I think this was, a, this was a good tie-in, but it reminded him of when Moses goes up to the mountain, and he's up there for a while, and people are looking at their watches like, uh, is Moses coming back? He's gone for so long that they start to drift towards rejection. And what do they cook up? They cook up a golden calf because that was the model that was given to them by the world around them. It was symbolic of this drift towards rejection. So a different situation here, but I think my, my, my friend made a good point. It's like, hey, this goes back to that pattern that we had seen this before that there's this crisis, there's big changes going on, and you're not sure, you know, it's not looking good for the future. You get nervous. There's some fear. Maybe there's some external forces going on. And so we are tempted to look elsewhere for security, to look elsewhere for answers, and to look elsewhere for joy, to look elsewhere for God. But Samuel warns them. He warns them. So you guys want a king. This is what your king is going to be like. And I can sum it up in one word. T-A-K-E. Take. Take, take, take. Well, what's he going to take? He's going to take their sons for his army. 
their daughters to support the army, their fields to bring in supplies, their donkeys for labor, their flocks for food, and pretty much you will be enslaved. Takes the whole phrase, you know, be careful what you wish for, takes that to a whole new level. You might just get it. Our picture of Yahweh God is much different. The God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Samuel is characterized as, is by the word grace. That God, our God, is one who gives. Grace is another word for give. It's a gift. But not this king. This king's a taker. And it's going to be so bad that you're going to cry out. Just like in the days of judges, in the judges, when the people cried out and God would send a deliverer, some deliverers better than others, some deliverance was better than others. But God heard their cries and he says, this time, and we don't always understand the ways of God, but this time there will be no deliverance this time. Think about that. This is the ultimate unanswered prayer, but it's, it's given to them as a warning. And all the people listened to Samuel and apologized. Actually, no, they didn't. We wish that they did. Take a look at verse 19. Rather than apologize, rather than heed the warning, they double down. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So this is... With one of the worst warnings of all time that you could ever have, it's going to be take, 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 take. Even with all that, the hearts of the people were hardened and they did not want to hear it. They think they know better than God. Isn't that like the contemporary nature of sin? That we are tempted to think that we know better than God. Ah, why don't people pray more? Why don't people read the scripture more? Why don't more people come to church? We got empty seats here. Could it be that one of the answers to the question is that we think we know better than God? And we drift towards rejection. God says, don't do this. What do we do? We think we know better. We think we can handle it. On the flip side, God says, no, do this. 
What do we do? Well, we forget about it or we neglect it. We don't do it. It all sounds very foolish. But again, can you identify with this scenario? I think I can. How many times have I played the fool in this scenario? It's tempting to think that we're like Samuel. We're that mature figure. But all too often, we're standing there right with the people. We're talking too much, and we're not doing enough listening to God's word. Where do you turn during times of crisis and pressure? Maybe a time of transition, loss of leadership. When's the last time you thought about the ways in which God has provided for you and has delivered his people in the past? Especially at moments when things are not going well. When do you reflect on the ways that God has delivered a miracle in some of these situations? Your back is against the wall. And clearly, boldly, we got to ask ourselves, do we think we know better than God? The way we answer those questions is going to change our outlook. It may just change our lives. But I'm, I'd be holding out on you if we just ended the sermon here because that's a lot to, that's a lot to take in, all right? That's a lot to handle. We can't just leave it here in the realm of, say, ethics or application or something like that. We can't leave it there. There's more to it. Because if we answer all those questions correctly, that, yeah, we say we turn to God and, and, and uh, we think about his deliverance and we acknowledge that we don't know better than him, all that as those stack up, that feels kind of heavy. It feels heavy. And like the judges, you know, like, hey, you have this, you, you have this shining moment, and you're like, hey, something good happened, you're, you're delivered, and then you forget about it, right? It is this cycle of our lives, and it can become depressing. You know the rules, you try to follow them, but then you mess up and you judge yourself. You feel guilty. Do you remember when I said at the beginning of this message that there was a positive vision of kingship in the Bible? Again, you wouldn't think of it if you just read this chapter. There's a positive vision. And in a lot of things in life, God takes a messy situation like this it's a this situation is messed up. But God takes messed up situations and in his in his wisdom, in his mystery, in his divine sovereignty, he aligns them with his will and he's at work. So this request for a king was a bad one. But there is a request for a king that is different. 
And the king I'm thinking about comes from Abraham's lineage, as promised. And the king I'm thinking about does better than writing out the words of the law. He is the living word and the fulfillment of the law. This anticipatory king that I'm thinking about doesn't just keep the peace when people are doing what's right in their own eyes. He's the prince of peace. The king I'm thinking about is not a taker. He's a giver. He's generous. In stark contrast to the warning in 1 Samuel 8, big, huge warning, very different. The gospel says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's, it's ironic that it was the governor, the representative of the most powerful empire, definitely at that time, but one could argue one of the most powerful empires of all time, the representative of that kingdom had a small sign inscribed that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the people at that time said, no, 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 don't, don't put that, don't put that. That's what he, that's what he claimed. And Pilate says, it's written. It's staying. And the good news is, although the people of God have rejected the servant of God, they've rejected the lordship of God, they've rejected the warning of God, they've even rejected God himself. <coughs> Unlike the dreaded warning here where there's no answer, for those of us who can identify with any of that, that we were the ones that rejected God. For those of us who can identify with that, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That the Lord will answer according to his promises when you cry out to him. That's the good news of the new covenant. That this is grace for you and for me, that God's not in the business of taking, but he's in the, in the business of giving you, you life. And Jesus says, I have come that you have, may have life and that you will have, you have it abundantly. You will have an abundant life. And I wonder how much of this looking for a king back in, back in the day here in this passage, I wonder much, how much of that came from a lack of knowing the true nature of the king of kings. There's a very interesting verse, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7, that says, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. 
and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. But eventually, you get the impression that he does come to know the Lord, that he is given the revelation of the word of God, and that we are called to get to know this king so that these alternative kings are seen for what they are and things are in perspective. And you know this, you know this king when you, follow, when you seek to follow the ways of a godly parent. You know the king when you seek to follow the leader that God has appointed. You know the king when you have the word content in your vocabulary. You know the king when you seek to avoid that rejection. You know the king when you seek to remember the works of the Lord. You know the king, the king of kings, when you seek his face before coming up with your own answer. You know the king of kings, you know that he's different and his vision for you is different and deliberately so. You know the king of kings that there are no other gods before the one true God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you know the king of kings when you pay attention to the warnings of God. You know the king of kings when you seek to follow the model of, of giving rather than taking that is more blessed to, re, to give than to receive. And you know the king of kings when you seek to listen to the voice of God. This is the God who protects and provides for us. This is what the people, the elders at that time, those tribal families, they missed it. They completely missed it. And God says, that's a bad deal. It's a really bad deal. But in God's mystery, he gives them that king and that vision. But that vision of the positive king continues to the day of Christ. And this is an invitation to walk by faith and not by sight, right? To walk by faith and not by sight. That things may look really good on the outside world. If only we could have this or that and we see these alternative visions that are very, very appealing. But God calls us to be content with his vision and where he has placed you. Even if, even if there's a, a, it looks like there's going to be a gap somewhere and it makes you nervous, but he calls you to follow him, to listen to his voice, and to anchor your decisions in his, in his word. One of the most powerful sermons of all time was by a guy named S.M. Lockridge. And this guy can preach. It's like one of these grainy recordings. And I, I first remember seeing that. This, they, they played this at Edgewater one, one time many years ago. And it's a three-minute video clip. Um, so I, I'd encourage you to check this out. But uh, it's called, That's My King. And Pastor Lockridge, you can tell he's passionate as he's going through, he's reminding himself 
of who his king is. I can't do it justice, but let me just read a couple of things from this sermon. The Bible says he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He supplies strength to the weak. He sympathizes and he saves. He discharges debtors. That's my king. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. I invite the worship team to come up as we uh, reflect on God's word from 1 Samuel 8. And let me, let me just uh, close this here in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we uh, come before you all too often in the crowd. Thinking some alternative vision of power and leadership is what we want or what we need. But God, you are what we need. Lord, forgive us when we seek out other deities in their various forms and fashions. And God, would you help us to see, help us to know you as the true God to know you for who you really are and to see that all these other visions pale in comparison to you. And we thank you for this vision of a king who we can look 
that we can look to and we can see the royalty of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.